Man of Steel, Answers Insight Commentary. Episode 18, Color, Context, Grades of Gray, Lex Luthor. Welcome to Man of Steel, Answers Insight Commentary. I'm your Man of Steel apologist, Dr. Awkward. I cover a mosaic of topics for fans who love discussing the Man of Steel and the DC Cinematic Universe. Together, we'll endeavor to answer the questions, criticisms, and controversies raised by Man of Steel and those eagerly anticipating the DCCU. Color. Why was Man of Steel color graded the way that it was? Why was the costume colored the way that it was? And what can that teach us about black and white morality and the shades of gray in between? We take a look at Lex Luthor, then this mosaic of color and morality ends with the mailbag. This podcast dives deep into Man of Steel to answer the critics and the confused. This show is not meant to convert anybody, but to celebrate a film that will lead us into the DC Cinematic Universe. Reasonable minds will differ, but this is a show for fans who love Man of Steel and who love to chew their food. The colors. Oh, the colors. If you have ever painted a room, participated in the planning of an extravagant wedding, or picked stationery for something crucial or formal, you've probably encountered more shades, varieties, and variants of white than you ever knew was possible. Depending on your attitude, it may all be just basically white. Or the differences might be stark and deadly serious. How dare somebody confuse powdered white with smart white or nano white? Isn't full moon obviously different from sweet vanilla, cotton knit, ivory mist, and almond cream? That off-white isn't off enough, and is that eggshell organic or oyster? <laughs> I'm sure you can tell that despite being incredibly detail-oriented by inclination, occupation, and necessity, I'm not the kind of guy that sweats these variations. But that isn't to say that I'm dismissive of those who do. I've got several artists in my family who have forgotten more about color theory than I'll ever know. But even without training, talent, or technical knowledge, color is incredibly visceral, and in that respect, accessible and instinctual. So everyone is going to have a reaction and an opinion about color. Today's episode was inspired by listener Mitch, who wrote in wanting to know whether Man of Steel would have been better received without the blue filter, making the colors brighter and less desaturated. I'm not a filmmaker, but I like knowing how things tick, so I like to know what techniques are being employed and why. And Mitch's question sent me on a quick quest of discovery to learn more about color grading choices and techniques. That preempted our regular scene-by-scene -scene commentary, but hopefully this episode will address this common comment about the film. So, color grading is basically altering the color of the film after it's been shot. It's been around for a while and would be called color timing because the effect was achieved by calculated exposure of film to certain chemicals or light for specified amounts of time. Color correction can refer to altering the color with gels or filters or lighting during filming. But in the digital age, it can also refer to post-production color alteration. Today, color grading or correction is accomplished digitally. A rather dramatic example comes in the 1998 film Pleasantville, where an innocent, wholesome, and idyllic 1950s community is cast in black and white, but its simplicity belies a certain sinister conformity when color is slowly introduced into the black and white world in the form of sex, art, sophistication, and intense emotion. 
As their world grows richer and more complex and nuanced, more and more color is introduced into the film. Director Gary Ross explains, quote, This movie is about the fact that personal repression gives rise to larger political oppression. That when we're afraid of certain things in ourselves or we're afraid of change, we project those fears onto other things. And a lot of very ugly social situations can develop. Unquote. In 2000, the Coen Brothers film, O Brother, Where Art Thou?, is typically said to be the first feature film to be entirely digitally color graded and heavily used to dramatic effect. The following excerpt is from Painting with Pixels. Post-production for live-action movies has largely been the domain of the film laboratory. All sorts of photochemical processes have been used over the years to create the final look of a picture. When it came to O Brother, Where Art Thou?, Filmmakers Joel and Ethan Cohen and director of photography Roger Deakins decided to depart from convention. For the first time, the look of an entire live-action feature was manipulated digitally. There are so many tools now, so many ways that they can vary the color. For instance, the very last scene in the movie as George Clooney is walking with Holly Hunter. I believe the color in the movie became a character. I believe it washes over the audience as you view it as a character. It lets you feel the period of time. It lets you feel the heat in the air. It lets you feel the sweat on their body. And that is something that the filmmaker could not capture in camera and could only use digital technology to let them capture that. The reason I raise the timing of these films is to note that Snyder graduated from film school in 1989, just as digital color grading was the cutting edge. It was being used in music videos, commercials, and experimental films, but still finding its way to feature film. From his other films, it's clear that Snyder is no stranger to digital grading. His fellow film school classmate, Michael Bay, would reinforce that must-have blockbuster look by using color grading in Bad Boys, The Rock, Armageddon, Pearl Harbor, Transformers, and so on. Bay is by no means alone, but that blockbuster look can generally be described as pushing blue and yellow or teal and orange to create a dynamic range of color, a complementary color scheme that appeals to our eyes and to allow elements to pop on the screen. Even before widespread color grading, cinematographers would chase the magic hour, sometimes called the golden hour, right after sunrise or before sunset to capture a similar look and achieve that dynamic separation of colors. Here's colorist Juan Malara analyzing the look and the theory behind that approach. So what is the summer blockbuster look? Here we're watching a few clips from Battleship, which features probably the most common example of a blockbuster style, the teal and orange treatment. It's pretty obvious, but the color palette is made up of predominantly teal and orange. The skin tones are pushing towards warm, rich orange-brown, and everything else in the scene is pushing towards cool teals and blues. This results in maximum color contrast and separation between the skin and everything else in the scene. So there are two major aspects to how this look is put together. First, cool blues and teals are added to anything in the scene that is neutral in color or lies in the cool blue-green color range. Second, anything in the warm color range such as skin is brought back to neutral or is warmed up further by adding yellow or orange. This is by no means a scientific comparison, but it gives us a good idea of what's going on. So why is this look so common? Why do colors play up the warm-cool separation? So here is the color wheel and here is the area that skin roughly occupies. Basic color theory states that complementary colors when used together are particularly dynamic due to the maximum color contrast between them. When placed next to each other, complementary colors pop and vibrate, which can be aesthetically pleasing. 
So the hues that are complementary to skin tones are in this area of the colour wheel, and it's no accident that this is where the teals and blues reside. So there are plenty of aesthetic reasons for the blockbuster look. However, like any tool or technique, repeated usage can create an expectation with the audience. For example, bullet time, which happens to be trademarked by Warner Brothers incidentally, doesn't have to be used in action films, and in fact was famously used in a Gap commercial. However, seeing bullet time creates an audience expectation associated with action films, and the effect wore out its welcome when it became less and less novel. Now, considering how elemental complementary colors are, I don't think that orange and teal will ever completely wear out its welcome, but there is definitely a certain audience expectation attached to the blockbuster look. It triggers an understanding whenever we see it. It's part of the audience's lexicon and genre savvy. In the same way that seeing sepia tones lets us know that the intention is to convey age or nostalgia, the blockbuster look is a way of signaling that we're going to see something big budget, over the top, exaggerated, accentuated, unrealistic, and unnatural. Seeing that look creates a pact with the audience that you're about to experience something stylized and unreal. And I think that explains in large part why Man of Steel tends towards a different approach for most of the film. Snyder's intentions were to take Superman out of being in stylized worlds and into ours. I've never felt like a movie should exist in the real world before, but I feel like Superman should. We've designed the movie as like a movie that we shoot on location a lot and in real settings with real situations because I feel like the most realistic movie I'll make is a movie with Superman in it, which I think is ironic, but in some ways right, because I like the idea that in order to support him, Superman has never existed that way. In some ways, for me to do a stylized Superman movie is the Superman movies that have all been made. All the Superman movies that have been made exist in some sort of weird stylized world where like everyone's like apple pie and Chevrolet and it's like madness, right? Like it's like the, it's like an American dream in a weird way. So the idea for me is like, or the thing I find interesting is that being able to release the character from that world, that stylized world where he's been stuck and shackled and bring him to our world and see what he does, you know? Superman is a sort of divinely different thing for me. I'm sort of approaching it like his credibility relies on his believability. And I really feel like it'd be cool to put him in a hard reality. So to me, it seems like there was a conscious effort to move away from that standard blockbuster grading to obscure ever so slightly the idea that you're watching an artificial summer blockbuster, but instead watching something more grounded, real, and journalistic. This extends beyond the grading, from filming almost entirely with a single handheld camera, seemingly guilelessly, and incredibly restrained but efficient editing and camera work. There was a clear intention to step away from the stylized and to be more authentic. You know, I said that Superman is the most realistic movie I've ever made, and it's about Superman. It says something about the way I see movies and reality or whatever, you know. So people say, like, well, like, for instance, if it's Sucker Punch or Watchmen or whatever, like, oh, he likes stylized, he can only do, like, a stylized world because, you know, that's all he knows how to do. I hope that when they see those films in the future, they're like, oh, he's, oh, he's doing that on purpose. It's not like, uh... I hope, hopefully it, it shines a light on those other films and says, like, oh, that was by design. It wasn't right. like a, like, just random, you know, shot making. Well, of course, of course. Contrast this against Michael Bay's direction, which has intentional technique but lacks restraint. This is a short analysis of Michael Bay's habits by Tony Zhao, who has an incredible video essay series called Every Frame a Painting. 
What makes Bay unique is how many layers and how complex the movement is. That doesn't make his shots better, it just makes them more complicated than the competition. That's why his frames seem to have a lot of stuff going on. Lots of dust, dirt, smoke, or explosions between the layers. Also, lampposts. Lots of lampposts. Once you see this, it's much easier to deconstruct his imagery and to see its limits. For instance, Bay doesn't distinguish between when to do a shot and when not to do it. He'll use the same camera movement whether the character is saying something important. You have any money here in the States? <laughs> of course. Or total gibberish. What did I say? Did you hear what I said? I heard what I said because I was standing there when I said it. Every shot is designed for maximum visual impact, regardless of whether it fits. If you like that, incidentally, Zhao does a brief comparison between Superman 78 and Man of Steel in his Scorsese video, which is insightful and worth a look, even if you don't necessarily agree with his conclusions. And his essay series will cause your appreciation for film technique to skyrocket. I highly recommend checking it out. We'll talk more about Snyder's restraint in Man of Steel and what it means for the future of the DCCU some other time. But let me just present the basic idea that using reality as your bedrock or your canvas gives you way more creative freedom than starting in and with fantasy. An artist who can render reality can always elect to be more stylized, but an artist who uses shortcuts to cartoon will quickly be frustrated by their own limitations. Perhaps the inability to draw feet or employ proper perspective or proportions, and so on. A number of artists will come to mind for longtime comic fans. But that's a topic better saved for when we talk about Sujihara's comments in another show. One last note about Snyder's restraint, the lack of techniques isn't to say an absence of effort or intelligence, quite the contrary. As you may see from the analysis in the A Thesis on Man of Steel video, or my Action Comics number one tribute video, it just means that Snyder had to be extremely clever and subtle in adding layers of meaning without relying on more overt techniques. Aside from breaking with the conventional expectations of the blockbuster look, I speculate that it was important for them to make a clean break and separation from 2005's Superman Returns. In the same way that Man of Steel turned away from the Williams theme music or redesigned the look of Krypton, I believe there may have been a decision that avoided the same look of Superman Returns. Returns was gold-toned, it was warm and nearly sepia, to create that sense of nostalgia. By contrast, Man of Steel's cooler temperatures sit on the other side of the spectrum or color wheel. Interestingly, although Returns uses warm colors to harken back to Donner's Superman, Superman 78 and Superman 2 were generally neutrally colored by today's standards. I should pause to say that if you're scratching your head and recall those films differently, it may be because Warner Brothers has the habit of further adjusting the color timing of their films before releasing them onto Blu-ray. The colors on Returns was flattened to mute the spark and the orange and teal contrast isn't as aggressive as it was in theaters. Meanwhile, the color grading on Superman 1 through 4 was aggressively modernized to push contrast, darken the blacks, and upping the orange and the teal. Keep this in mind when people post online costume color comparison shots. The Blu-ray is not perfectly representative of what was shown theatrically or available in other formats. In the show notes, you can find a link to a comparison video between the 1996 laser disc 
of Superman 2's more faithful transfer and the Blu-ray's color-graded release. You can take a look and decide for yourself. For some, this may be an improvement. For others, a maddening change. And for many, something completely unnoticed. Nonetheless, wherever you land on that, Man of Steel took a decidedly different approach, in part. If you watch the film specifically with an eye for color, you'll notice that the orange and teal scheme is actually quite present during the Kryptonian scenes. How could it not, with the world bathed in the warm colors of a red sun? Against such a backdrop, the blue-white glows of thrusters and energy weapons were bound to pop. The Genesis chambers are cast in blue light, but contain orange glowing spheres. And when Zod and his crew are released from their imprisonment, we're treated to the tragic spectacle of the remains of their dead planet adrift around a blue glow of a failed star contrasted against the scattered light of their red sun. And despite the goals of Man of Steel, all of this is exactly right. Because Krypton is intended to be alien and otherworldly, not grounded as Earth. So Krypton is stylized in color. Its inhabitants have stylized manners of speech. Their combat, courts, citadels, councils, and coups are all stylized, rather than adhering to the more grounded realism of Earth. Tonally, within the film, color grading was used to segregate and separate the world of the Kryptonians from Earth. The dramatic use of this is perhaps nowhere more apparent than in Zod's interrogation of Kal-El in his dream machine. Taking place during Magic Hour, the color grading enhances the unnatural surreality of the scene, making it quickly obvious to the audience that something's amiss and that we're not in Kansas anymore. The warm orange and gold and brown cast of that scene triggers that same nostalgic reminiscence showing that Clark thinks about and imagines Kansas through a bit of an idealistic lens. The use of the black costume here is instructive since the goal for this scene is for Clark to be swallowed up by it for the false reality to bury Clark in Zod's dark intentions imposed upon Clark's idealism. Based on the color theories that we've discussed, it makes sense that Clark wouldn't appear here in his normal blue costume, because against this amber setting, the blues of his costume would boldly stand out, pop, and assert themselves as alive, vibrant, and strong. Exactly the opposite intentions of this scene. So the filmmakers wisely deployed a black suit to achieve their goals on multiple levels, literally seeing Clark cloaked in black with all the meaning that that carries, but also selecting a color that won't fight the scene, thus reinforcing Clark's powerlessness. I think that serves as a pretty good segue into talking about the color choices for the costume. In a broad sense, Superman's costume is a nightmare because it's a clash of primary colors, blue, red, and yellow. The triadic color harmony scheme. <laughs> so this one is probably one of the hardest to pull off. Um, it involves colors which are equally distant to each other on the wheel. As I said, hardest to pull off. Um, it's really best for cartoons or surreal scenes um, because it can really come across as being quite playful. It's also elemental and primal and totally fitting that the first superhero should be founded in those colors and it explains why he leapt so powerfully off the page with impact during the Depression. 
Here we were with the depression. People were so depressed they needed to put color back in their lives, so they colored glass, and that's where depression glass comes from. But that color scheme tends to defy our common notions of color harmony. Red and blue aren't complementary colors. They're not adjacent or analogous hues. They don't quite match the typical application of triadic harmony, which either uses all three equally spaced hues on the color wheel in balanced proportion or uses one color to dominate with the other two as accents. Superman's scheme tends to balance the red and the blue, but only use yellow as an accent. Lest we get too far ahead of ourselves, here's just a quick description of color terminology and how colors can be described. Color is the umbrella under which hue, value, and chroma rest. Hue being the distinction between different colors on a wheel from red to red-orange, so to speak value being light and dark, and chroma being bright and dull. So if you look in reality or in nature, all of those values tend towards neutral and are toned down considerably. If you are designing something to look like it has a natural place in reality, you will tend to step away from bright values and heavily saturated colors. Instead, you'll probably pick one color to be the accent and bring down the brightness and the saturation of the other colors. Then your tricolored hero would fit into the triadic or achromic color harmonies, which is pleasing and natural to the eye. People gravitate to safe colors, grounded colors, rooted in the past and rooted into the ground. So you bring up what we call organic colors. And as we get familiar with that, there comes a time where we need a pick-me-up. So take the familiar and just add a little accent of something new and give you a totally new look. This is hardly a novel idea. All you have to do is look at other heroes traditionally costumed in primary colors. For all five Spider-Man movies, the brightness and the saturation of Spidey's blues were turned nearly black. For X-Men First Class, the blues are again desaturated and nearly black, while the yellow is left as the accent. Moreover, it's traditional for Superman. In his most visually realistic portrayal in the comics, Superman as rendered by Alex Ross in Kingdom Come and Peace on Earth is routinely bathed in shadow as a contextual means of bringing down the brightness and the saturation of his costume. Even if it's bright in a few scenes, it is primarily presented to the reader in a way that mutes the colors, both to appear more authentic and realistic, but also to convey the mood and the tone of the books. The Fleischer cartoons opened with Superman backlit in order to cast similar dark shadows over the front of his frame and achieve this effect. Likewise, it set many of its scenes at night. In Superman the Animated Series, Superman's briefs were always practically black with only red highlights, and the creators reveled in being able to place Superman in scenes at night. You got to a point where any show that took place at night or was darker, like that's what you wanted to do with Superman too. What do you mean? Like you like the night episodes, like Superman looks better at night. Oh, well, yeah, that and was the any thing. Any show that takes place at night, put it at night. <laughs> well, that was the thing. When we started doing Superman, we deliberately made a change from the Batman episodes. We deliberately tried to make it a daytime set show. But when we did do a couple episodes that took place at night, we went, wow, you know, Metropolis looks really pretty at night, and the color palette on the characters looks cool at night. So we did try to start setting as many shows at nighttime as possible. Just can't get away from that, the dark stuff. If you think back to Superman 78, Superman largely debuts to the world in nighttime scenes. The darkness of night brings down the brightness of the costume, desaturates the colors to appear more natural, giving him greater verisimilitude and credibility.
Only once the audience has completely bought into the reality of Superman does the film allow him to be presented in the daylight, with the brightness and the saturation turned all the way up. You'll notice whenever Superman Returns wanted to show Superman up close and intimately, needing a sense of reality, those scenes tended to be at night. Of course, we all know that Superman is traditionally a denizen of the daylight, so rather than trying to stage a script around Superman acting as a night owl, Man of Steel took the reasonable approach of toning down those values so that he could be presented first and foremost in the day, without looking out of place. The same logic that we've applied to trying to harmonize Superman's colors with himself and his setting apply to harmonizing Superman with his future Justice League members. As tough as it is to try to reconcile Superman's color clash for the cameras, imagine trying to balance seven superheroes, each with their own aggressive color schemes. A chromic harmony is always achievable, so it is sensible to push towards desaturated colors so that no one looks out of place or stands out like a sore thumb when the team is assembled. Those clashing colors and styles are highly unstable. Run! And yes, even the Avengers have been heavily treated to bring them into alignment with one another, but that's somebody else's podcast. However, both the Avengers and the Superman examples I cited can be instructive. The deeper you draw your audience into the reality of your film, the more they'll be willing to suspend their disbelief and the more the filmmakers can push bolder, brighter, and more saturated colors. You start with the grounded, but then move towards the fantastic. I think it's telling that our first promotional look at Superman in Batman v Superman, released by US Today in July of 2014, is in a dark and stormy setting. The setting mutes the colors for now. But if you miss the traditional clash of colors, I suspect you'll be in for a welcome surprise when we see that costume in regular daylight. The filmmakers wean the audience on the more natural and relatable color schemes before pushing into the extraordinary. You don't have to agree with the choice or even like it, but understand that it isn't an accident or driven purely by mood. It's a competent and justifiable design choice. The choice is explained by the underlying principles and the larger context text. And that's what's important, that we can understand the choices even if we don't agree or like them. Context is extremely important, especially with color, because the human eye registers color primarily as a relative value rather than an absolute one. What makes that image so special? Well, it's an example of the land effect. Even though it appears to contain a bunch of different colors, oranges and yellows and greens, the entire image is actually made out of nothing but red. Seriously, I've linked the image down in the description so you can grab it and investigate it using your favorite image editor. The yellows are actually light reds or pinks, and the green is just dull gray red. What's going on is called color constancy. Your visual system, your eyes and brain, calculate the average illumination conditions of a scene and then subtract those conditions so that colors remain relatively constant. This is why a blue object looks blue whether you're viewing it under the midday sun or a dark red sunset or fluorescent light or incandescent light. It's a very brilliant system, but it can fool us. Special images like this one appear to be illuminated with a lot of red light, so your brain actually subtracts the red and makes assumptions. 
There are plenty of other examples of the land effect and other ways our visual system lies to us. I'm sure we've all seen the optical illusion where we're told that two squares, one in a shaded region and the other not, are exactly the same color. Even if our brain refuses to accept the fact until the squares are placed side by side or the context is removed or obscured. Seeing color is one of the simplest things the brain does. And yet, even at this most fundamental level, context is everything. Okay? What I'm going to talk about is not that context is everything, but why is context everything? Because it's answering that question that tells us not only why we see what we do, but who we are as individuals and who we are as a society. Which means we can bring all this information together to create some incredibly strong illusions. This is one I made a few years ago. And you'll notice you see a dark brown tile at the top and a bright orange tile at the side. That is your perceptual reality. The physical reality is that those two tiles are the same. They are the same, okay? Don't believe me? Let's watch it again. Now, what does all this mean? What this suggests is that no one is an outside observer of nature, okay? We're not defined by our essential properties, by the bits that make us up. We're defined by our environment and our interaction with that environment, by our ecology. And that ecology is necessarily relative, historical, and empirical, right? So what I'd like to finish with is this over here, because what I've been trying to do is really celebrate uncertainty, because I think only through uncertainty is there potential for understanding. A change in context or our interpretation of such context can take objective, empirical stimuli and render its meaning ambiguous or differing. Reasonable minds will differ after all. You may have experienced this recently with a certain blue and black dress. <laughs> uh, okay. So we've discussed the color grading of the film and the color of the costume, but where does that leave us with Mitch's question? He wanted to know if the film would be better received. And my answer is going to be a frustratingly unsatisfying, we'll never know. My effort in explaining everything that we've discussed is to show the larger context, the incredible intentionality and the decisive choices that went into the creative decisions surrounding color. Many of those things can't be intuited or or consciously appreciated unless or until they're pointed out. And so for every person that crosses their arms and parsimoniously reduces their entire evaluation simply to how bright the colors are, there may be 100 people or more who didn't realize that they were being drawn into the movie more because it didn't clash with the reality that the film was trying to build, didn't conflict with the themes that it was trying to develop, or summon to mind a past continuity that wasn't applicable to this story. The film tried to forge reality, whereas saturated primary colors are unreal. The film carried a serious tone, whereas primary colors are bright and cheery. The film broke away from over-the-top blockbuster filters and the nostalgic sepia of returns, because those would have set up the audience for unfulfilled expectations. Maybe the audience would have enjoyed that dissonance? I don't know. But I completely appreciate the reasoning behind why Man of Steel made the choices that it did. It wasn't an afterthought or an accident. Color is very much a part of the filmmaker's toolbox, and the choices and the selections are carefully planned and selected, despite being incredibly subjective. And that intentionality 
pays dividends, even if it can trip less sophisticated litmus tests, like boiling it all down to a thumbs up or thumbs down because of brightness, saturation, or vibrancy. We've only scratched the surface of color, but I think that's more than enough to point out the complexity of color and the importance of context. In context, choosing color isn't usually a binary choice between bright and dark, but rather a selection along many tints and shades that make up its tonal values. Likewise in life, rarely can our preferences, positions, morals, beliefs, or values be reduced to mere black and white. Reality tends towards complexity, nuance, subjectivity, and more. The big picture tends to be a full-color spectrum of things seen and unseen, known, unknown, and unknowable, well beyond just black and white. Black and white rules don't always provide the answers that help us navigate the real world, especially with complex or conflicting principles. In Captain America 2, The Winter Soldier, the moral quandary was presented. What do you do when your side trades freedom for security in a democracy where people clamored for it? The tension between democratic desired security and the founding principle of liberty is a real-world issue. However, the film quickly writes Captain America out of having to make a decision by revealing that it was the enemy manipulating the public into trading freedom for security all along. Thus, the film's central debate was rendered meaningless. In the real world, you don't get to be written out of controversies. In Man of Steel, the filmmakers showed that being active in the world means that controversy and confrontation are unavoidable. More than anything, Man of Steel's moral message is maybe. Rather than relying on black and white absolutes, we see that Man of Steel is careful to resist absolute or blanket claims. Although the age of exploration was incredible, it also led to Krypton's demise. Although Krypton gave us Zod, it also gives us Superman. Although Clark is bullied by some, another bully extends his hand in compassion. Although one journalist readily sells Lois out, Lois honors Clark's confidence even after being held by the government. Although Colonel Hardy gives Lois a hard time on Ellesmere and is the one to capture her, he's also the first one to speak out on her behalf before Feora. Although the military fires on Superman in Smallville, it later helps him save the world and acts as his ambassador to Washington in the end. Although Steve Lombard delights in Lois's suffering, he risks his own life to save Jenny. Although Byrne insults Clark, he saves him. Although Ludlow bullies Clark, other truck drivers help him. Although Zod betrayed the council, he's fiercely loyal to a narrow vision of Krypton. And although Jonathan loved Clark, he possibly hurt him more than anyone else. Just before the tornado scene, Jonathan says, we've been making this up as we go along, so maybe, maybe our best isn't good enough anymore. Jonathan's uncertainty about how to raise Clark is reflective of the ambiguity of reality. The main thing that the film presents is that inflexible dogma must be confronted with free will, choice, trust, and compromise. Zod is presented as inflexibly dogmatic, and in many ways acts like those with polarized positions, adhering to those positions despite the consequences. Jorel, however, makes several efforts at diplomacy and discussion, reaching out to the council, to Zod, and then to Zod again as a ghost. Without trust, Superman isn't able to receive Jorel's blessing or gain Lois as an ally. Without trust, Superman doesn't get on to Zod's ship and learn his plan so that he can defeat him. Without trust, Superman can't defeat the Kryptonians without the military's help. 
Jonathan encourages Clark not just to think about their own lives or the lives of those around them, but to consider the whole world, to broaden his perspective, to look beyond immediate self-interest or concerns. Even if the outcome seems counterintuitive or contrary to black and white, Jonathan wanted Clark to think to consider and question the maybe. This means that even after Jonathan's death, Clark would question and wonder, and that uncertainty leaves him open to be understanding, compassionate, and tolerant, holding out hope for common ground rather than assuming that he has the answers. This was the element of choice or chance for the filmmakers rather than making Superman follow a predetermined role. What if Superman could be something greater than what tradition had allowed him to be? What if Superman could tackle real-world complexities without being written out of controversies? The certainty of an infallible moral compass has a certain appeal. No doubt. I don't begrudge people who enjoy that in certain windows and glimpses of the Superman mythos. I enjoy it myself. However, that compass is necessarily illusory because there are situations where there is no moral north to point to. And rather than have Superman be confronted by these situations, which we in the real world face every day, the tendency is to write Superman out of having to face such situations or to show him as impotent in them. However, if you look elsewhere in Superman's tradition, we find a hero who is more proactive, even if it's at the sacrifice of certainty. What Man of Steel was careful to do was show the underlying rationale and hope, perhaps to its detriment, that the audience would be as empathetic and as compassionate as needed to seek out and understand those rationales, even if not to agree with the choices made. Even Clark questions whether he agrees with his father, but he still loves and understands him. And in the end, that's all I hope for. Not agreement between people, but understanding. John Wesley Shipp, the Flash of the 90s CBS TV series, recently answered the question of what superpower he would want if he could have any power except super speed. His earnest answer is more concise and kind than all of my ramblings. If I could be given any superpower, it would, in this country in, in 2015, for us to rediscover how to talk to each other. Mm. You know, uh, that we can disagree and nobody gets to uh, send anybody to hell. Nobody has to leave the building. We're, you know, we're all members of the human family and citizens of this great country. And let's take a breath and remember that we're all on the same side. If I could have a superpower, I think that would be the one I would want. It would be amazing just just, just to say, okay, back off and, and, and remember a sense of compassion, understanding, and what we have in, co- in commonality. If you want to hear the full interview, it's available at Flash TV Talk, and you can check in the show notes. I think I'm going to take his advice and wrap this part up here. I had extensive notes about Superman's relationship to mainstream American values throughout history and media, whether confronting the Klan or conceding to the comics code. But I think I'm going to file that away with the military consultant segment from the last episode and use it in an odds and ends episode when, God willing, I can take a vacation or something. So even if you prefer a perfect paragon as your Superman, we can at least understand that Man of Steel takes place in a universe where everyone gets tested and must compromise. As long as your definition of hero isn't focused on flawlessness, Superman can still be the DCCU's ultimate hero without being perfect. By the same token, I don't necessarily need or want all of my villains to be pure evil. 
And that takes us to Lex Luthor. Jonathan asks about the recently released photograph, and it looks good. That's definitely Jesse Eisenberg with a shaved head. It's not an earth-shattering revelation. But let's not take it for granted. Not every continuity goes with that iconic bald look. And even if the film had every intention of going that way, not every guy can carry a bald look. Here we can let out a collective sigh of relief that he looks good. I'm much more interested in the comments and the clues that Snyder gives in the Entertainment Weekly article. Let's break it down. Snyder says he's not any of the Lexes that you've seen, that's for sure. Other than him being a captain of industry and one person to the world and another person to himself. And bold, of course. Our Lex is disarming and he's not fake. He says what he believes and he says what's on his mind. You can unravel the string and decipher what he means. It's all there. I love comments like these because they are maddeningly uninformative while doubtlessly true. My brain can't help but try to find some clue or insight, but at the end of the day, we just have to wait. When Snyder says he's not any of the Lexes that you've seen, that's for sure. If you interpret it narrowly, that is literally true. Eisenberg is a new Lex. The question is, how broadly can we try to interpret this? We'll come back to this in a bit. Snyder shares that Luther is a captain of industry, which isn't a surprise considering how frequently his logo is in Man of Steel. But let's not take that for granted. In the past, Luther has been mostly a mad scientist and on film a self-proclaimed criminal mastermind. But on television, we've seen variations of the megalomaniacal billionaire businessman, which has yet to come to the silver screen. So our Luther will be legitimately and independently wealthy and a leader that people look to or a captain. However, our Luther will have his own private agendas, being one person to the world and another to himself. Again, easy to take for granted, but the mad scientist or the greatest criminal mind our time has ever seen never held themselves out as anything. But here, Luther must be perceived as legitimate, which is the strongest armor of all against Superman. As much as I adored the DCAU's Lex Luthor, as portrayed by Clancy Brown, imagine how helpless Superman would have been against him if Luthor had simply never stepped outside the bounds of the law. We've already talked about the baldness, so the idea that Lex is disarming and earnest is interesting. Most modern Lexes are suave and honest to a degree, but not disarming, at least not to Superman. Whether Byrne, Lois and Clark, or the animated series, All-Star, Red Sun, Birthright, etc., Lex tends to be openly hostile towards Superman, both to his face and to the public. And that's at least one way that I think that we can have a fresh but logical take on Luther for the DCCU. If Luther has an agenda against Superman, why not keep that agenda private? Publicly, why not be Superman's pal? I think that plays to Eisenberg's strengths as an actor, probably better than maintaining expectations that he's going to be a charismatic and authoritative David Xanatos type. And if you haven't watched Gargoyles, you're missing out. More on this in a bit, but let's talk first about the repair of Metropolis. As an exercise in inhabiting this world, I'd suggest that any theories based on Luther possessing or rebuilding Metropolis to own it are perhaps misplaced. Let's have some perspective here. The richest man in human history is said to be 14th century West African emperor Mansa Musa, whose net worth was estimated to be around a staggering $400 billion. 
in modern times, the richest man on earth is generally Bill Gates, with a fortune floating near $80 billion. Contrast this against the damage estimates for 9-11. The damage to the Pentagon cost about $1 billion. The destruction to the World Trade Center and replacement cost about $8 billion. So far, so good. Seems like Gates might be able to make a dent in that, right? However, not so fast. When we start to add in cleanup, infrastructure like the subway, phones, sewage, and electricity, the cost of computers, furniture, cars, and, and so on, the bill starts to add up and eclipse the richest man on earth's fortune. Which incidentally isn't a liquid account where he can just write New York a check. In 2011, the New York Times estimated the total cost of 9-11 to be $3.3 trillion. Although more than half of that are war-related costs, they arguably still should be included into a DCCU analysis because doubtless there would be funding to defend against future extraterrestrial incursion. To put that into perspective, the total national debt is about $18 trillion. In other words, it's unlikely that Luthor, Wayne, Gates, or even Emperor Musa could claim ownership for the rebuilding of Metropolis. Aside from money, consider the time. The Freedom Tower, which replaced the Twin Towers, had its grand opening in November of 2014, over 13 years after the collapse. Rebuilding skyscrapers is slow and costly, and so the story of Batman v Superman shouldn't hinge on that effort. Of course, there are some X factors in play which change up the equation. First, the assumption that they want to rebuild skyscrapers on the site. A park still takes time and money, but is magnitudes upon magnitudes less time and money. And so a park could actually be up and running on a provisional basis by the time BVS takes place. Second, there's Superman, a physics-defying entity who can shift the equation some, but in all honesty, not that much unless his powers develop well beyond what we saw in Man of Steel. Third, there's the possibility of human-adapted Kryptonian technology, which can achieve who knows what. The last two take us away from a more grounded reality, so I prefer the first possibility, but we'll see. So, from that dose of reality with regards to rebuilding, let's examine endorsing Superman. A few weeks after watching Man of Steel in theaters, I wrote an essay on why I imagined that the Luther inhabiting this world would publicly endorse and support Superman. Since then, we've obviously learned more about the story and the casting, but I'm going to adapt that essay for your consideration. Again, this isn't an expectation or an ultimatum, but an exercise in trying to empathize and put ourselves into the shoes of the characters of this world, rather than imposing our external expectations upon them. The basic gist of the argument is that Superman's vulnerabilities are more or less unknown. Superman would be doing good publicly. Bigotry lacks mainstream legitimacy, and if Superman is the most exceptional and most interesting thing in the whole history of the world, why wouldn't you try to hitch your wagon to that star? And so the essay begins with a question. How do you speak ill of an invulnerable alien who's faster than a speeding bullet, who can see your secrets through walls, who can hear your every whisper, who can incinerate you with a glance, or disappear you into orbit without anyone ever knowing? The answer? Very carefully. I don't think a smart Lex can exploit xenophobia and hate for Superman the way many assume that he can, at least not in a credible fashion. 
The only way that they can speak against Superman is if they earnestly believe that he won't hurt them, thus undercutting their entire message. If Superman was the unkillable, unaccountable monster without restraint or remorse that they portray him to be, and they sincerely believed him to be that monster, then they should and would fear and expect reprisal for publicly criticizing him. So their entire message lacks credibility from the outset, and I don't see Lex as quick to join their ranks. I think you use Lex to play xenophobia more subtly rather than mere hate-mongering. Lex goes to the governments of the world with Superman at his side and says something like this. We are not alone. As we know from that fateful day, the universe contains other souls, some as noble as our friend here. However, as we have all experienced, for everyone like our friend, there are many more who might be our enemy. Thank goodness for him, or we would have been crushed under the boot of an alien people with technology and capabilities far greater than our own, but not beyond us. While I am grateful for my friend, while we all are, humanity just barely escaped extinction. The day may come where we have more visitors from the stars, and if they come in peace, we will welcome them like our friend. But if they come to conquer or to kill, we cannot let the entire burden rest with our friend. I call upon the people of this planet to step forward into tomorrow. Together, nothing is beyond us. I have no idea where that weird voice came from. Uh, Eisenberg would not sound anything like that. And the writing would certainly be less cheesy. <laughs> but you get the idea. With funding and multinational backing, Lex can advance the transhuman project of making a superior Man of Steel or Man of Tomorrow to serve as a future foot soldier against aliens, foreign or domestic. This could give rise to Metallo or Cyborg. You get the idea. Remember, as we discussed back in episode two, it could be sensible for Superman to realize that the fate of the entire planet shouldn't rest in the hands of a farm boy from Kansas. That should be humanity's call, and he may interpret Jor-El's comments as equipping them to do that. Clark isn't a soldier or a general. He didn't go to war college or study strategy or learn the interactions of politics, diplomacy, and operational combat. He didn't study the philosophy of acceptable loss or collateral damage. So it isn't unreasonable that outside of an emergency situation, he defers to those who did to make those kinds of calls. This will probably be a future Man of Steel myths video at some point, but you'll note that it's the military figures that make the affirmative calls on collateral damage in the film. But back to Lex. Basically, we're setting up a framework for traditional superheroing with a twist. The fact is, in reality, it would be years before the world would let Superman be Superman as we know him. There would be lawsuits, hearings, licensing logistics, jurisdictional and citizenship issues, the insane throwing themselves off rooftops, and the infatuated throwing themselves at him, unceasing journalism, celebrity like we've never seen before, scientific curiosity, demands for activism, demands for exile, and just so much real-world stuff that saving a cat from a tree with a smile and a salute would seem wholly out of place. Unless Superman has an ally, a pal, 
One with the power and the resources to make it all happen. One with the charismatic command of the camera. A captain of industry. A media mogul. Wise to Washington and knowing the pulse of the people. With a legion of lawyers and a pro of public relations. If Lex Luthor is Superman's pal, he serves as an intermediary to manage the noise and the collateral consequences of a real-world superhero. So that Superman can do, perhaps ironically, what looks like a job for Superman, rather than all the paperwork that it comes with. I hope that Lex endorses Superman because I envision a Lex that is brilliant and recognizes that public hatred of Superman is not sustainable. If Lex privately hates Superman, and even if the damage to Metropolis is an opportunity to slander Superman's reputation, what does that get him? How does that accomplish anything? You have this invulnerable alien that you can't do anything about, so how is hurting Superman's feelings productive? Moreover, how do you get that to jive with all the good that Superman's been doing in the years since Zod? Yelling at Superman's do-gooding means that only the wounded and the fringe-bigoted xenophobics will listen. A legitimate businessman or political candidate can only go so far on hate, and I think Lex would see that and be more mainstream. If Lex endorses Superman and helps to improve Superman's image, Superman is more inclined to be out there in the public and to disclose more about himself. The more Superman trusts and is trusted, the more likely he is to subject himself to, say, experimentation. Lex can be that friend that offers Superman an opportunity to learn his limits. Better to learn it in a lab than finding out in the field while trying to save people. By keeping Superman close, Lex is gathering meaningful data, getting inside Superman's circle of trust and getting inside his head, learning how to hurt the Man of Steel both physically and mentally. Moreover, Lex maintains his legitimacy with the public and the audience because he isn't just ranting against an obvious do-gooder. And none of this has to be out of the goodness of his heart because there is plenty of profit motive in having access to or control of the Man of Steel and his technology. This approach allows Lex to play a supporting role while reinforcing the themes of trust from the first film. The timing is also perfect because if and when Lex and Superman go their separate ways, Bruce Wayne's billions are there to pick up where Lex Luthor left off maintaining the support for Superman's traditional heroics. Lex Luthor as something of a successful but sinister Jimmy Olsen seems to match Jesse Eisenberg, at least in my mind. But again, this is just a thought experiment. Honestly, I'd be excited if they did something like this, but I don't expect it. I kind of dream of Lex calling Lois Superman's girlfriend and Lois calling Lex Superman's pal as a nod to those titles. But enough about my speculation. Let me know if you've got an idea of how you see Lex inhabiting this world. You can write to me at mosaic at manofsteelanswers.com and maybe you'll get read in the mailbag, which we're going to tackle. Gathered together from the far reaches of the internet are assembled a network of podcasts dedicated to the first and greatest superhero, Superman. Superman. Superman Podcast Network is dedicated to covering all aspects of the Superman legend, featuring Superman and Batman, Golden Age Superman, 
the Superman Fan Podcast. The DC Comics Presents Show. From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast. It's Superman, the Schuster Herald Podcast. The Kara Zero Podcast. Superman Forever Radio. Superman Lives. Up, up, and away. Cadmus to Crisis, a Superboy podcast. The Amateur Steel, a John Henry Allen's podcast. The world's best podcast. And Radio Kale from supermanhomepage.com. Join hosts. Michael Bradley, John Wilson, Billy Hogan, Charlie Niemeyer, Russell Brad, Jeffrey Taylor, Michael Bailey, Scott Gardner, Sam Rizzo, Danny Sapp, Bob Fisher, Chris Moe, Mario Benessi, Drew Wintermeyer, David Byer, Matthew Epps, I'm Isaac, I'm Adam, Dave Eunice, and co-host Scotty V. At supermanpodcastnetwork.com. I've got to get my family out the door soon, so I'm going to rush through the mailbag this week lightning round style. Michael asks if BVS forces Superman to adopt the glasses trope as working, or will there be something else? I'd say check out episode 9 of the podcast where we talk about the secret identity in depth, but additionally, going forwards, we're going to have magic in the mix, as well as Batman's billions and crazy sci-fi technology. For all we know, Superman's going to sprout a new power or discard the secret identity. So I don't think they're forced to adopt the trope. Iron Waddle says the armor in Smallville still could have super strength because it's different than the armor on Krypton. It's true, Zod had different armor on Krypton and in Smallville. However, I think it's implied that the armor that they have was scavenged. Why would prisoners need or have armor, right? That means all of their armor should be from that same ancient age of exploration source, which raises two issues. One, why would Kryptonian armor regress from integrated super strength to none? And two, why couldn't Carvex, who was wearing such armor, overpower Lois Lane? At least for now, I think my theory is more consistent, but you can write me back and let me know. Longtime loyal listener Maggie asks whether the DCCU needs a Kevin Feige to succeed. Thanks for the question. Definitely could discuss this more, but the short answer is no. I think it's great to have a mastermind, but there are plenty of franchises run by collaborative groups. The Harry Potter group, the Star Wars Story group. Committee has taken on a bad connotation in film, but these big franchises always have a committee aspect. Even if there's a figurehead or a first amongst equals like Kevin Feige or Kathleen Kennedy, just because that person gets more press doesn't necessarily mean that they were key to that committee. Consider Bob Kane and Bill Finger, and perhaps to a lesser extent, Stan Lee and his many collaborators. Overall, the WB seems to give its creators a lot of autonomy, which can mean hits like American Sniper or The Matrix, or taking risks like letting Fury Road be rated R, but it can also mean misses like Jupiter Ascending. Do we want someone like Edgar Wright having to part ways or not? We'll see. I think I'm rambling. Uh, Let's visit this some other time, but the short answer is no. There is more than one way to do business and to make art. Based on episode 14, Derek wants to know if Marvel will take a crack at Superman in 2033 when the copyright returns to the public domain. (laughs) Uh, This is a case of a little knowledge being a dangerous thing. I think I said back then that there's an entire seminar's worth of material to fully explore this, but the short answer is anything's possible, but no. (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, Warner Brothers will still have the trademark. Marvel has thousands of characters it can use and develop unencumbered, 
and there's a dozen other reasons, but this is the lightning round and I have to wrap it up soon or this recording is going to include the sounds of running and yelling. So <laughs> uh, a quick thank you to Lalo Ho for the iTunes review and to loyal listener Flaming Panda. Okay, I've got to run, but thanks for listening. If you have a question you want answered or insight you want to share or commentary to make, go to manofsteelanswers.com or email me at mosaic at manofsteelanswers.com. Just think less than 52 weeks to go. I can't wait. This is Dr. Awkward, your DC Cinematic Universe apologist, signing off. You're the answer, son. The question I get most about grading is when to do it. Color grading is the absolute last thing that I do. I do not touch it until uh, the edit is completely locked. Of course, saying that the edit is completely locked is comical because I never stop tweaking until that thing is uploaded. So I guess it'd be better to say I never start grading until I can successfully lie to myself that the edit is locked. You're the answer, son. The Superman story is against everything the Klan stands for. It's about this Asian American kid who beats out the son of a Klan's member for like the key role on the baseball team. What I can't understand, Mr. Kent, is why the Fiery Cross Clan should burn a cross in front of Tommy Lee's house. The Clan gets involved and ultimately targets the kid's family. But they're nice people. Because the Clan of the Fiery Cross is made up of intolerant bigots, Jim. They don't judge a man in the decent American way by his own qualities. They judge him by what church he goes to and by the color of his skin. Cheapers? You mean... Yes, this bigoted mob is against Tommy Lee and his family because they're Chinese. Now, come on, we've got to move fast. Where are we going? To see the Lees got to get them to help us get rid of that clan. Most Americans realize the danger of allowing intolerance to breed. Now, we saw what happened to Germany and Italy and other European countries when a gang of murdering bigots like the Fiery Cross mob got in power. This Superman radio show was one of the first attempts to take a popular media program and connect it to a social mission. As the series continues to air, the public reaction is clear. Superman is the impetus for a larger repositioning of America. The series is a watershed moment in American history where, for the first time, being a Klan member is not seen simply as a negative thing. It's seen as a anti-patriotic thing. Accolades in the general press. It won all kinds of awards. The producers were commendated for their bravery. The popular reaction was overwhelmingly in favor of this show. Reduced to being a villain in a children's game, the Klan loses its legitimacy as a bastion of Americanism and is no longer seen as something to be taken seriously by the public. Embarrassed by their portrayal on the Superman radio show, Klansmen leave in droves. We don't have statistics, although we know that Klan membership begins to decline, but there's also the question of correlation and causation. But what the series does in a way is it undercuts the plank of Americanism, which the Klan had always kind of wrapped itself up in. The Klan underestimated how America had changed in the recent years. We've just come out of World War II and we've seen what the Nazis have done. Black soldiers had gone to war fought for their country, risked their lives, given their lives, and then come home to America to be told, you can't live anywhere you want. 
So society is starting to change. What the Superman radio show did was to seize that moment. So it was good timing to raise this issue. I happen to love my country and what it stands for. Equal rights and privileges for all Americans, regardless of what church they choose to worship God in or what color skin God gave them. Now you wait a minute. The United States was founded on that principle. You think that you or anyone else can stop the clan of the Fiery Cross? You bet we can. And we will. We stopped Hitler, mister. And his outfit sold the same baloney as yours. Fight you to the last breath. And so will every other American worth his salt. Both Kennedy and the radio show producers realize the power of Superman. The brilliance of Superman is he gives us all that feeling. That within us, there's also a superhero. And that we can stand up and do things that even Superman can do. Though he is ahead of his time, Kennedy is on the right side of history. Stetson Kennedy was an American hero. Stetson Kennedy told us about the reality of racism in America well before the civil rights movement gained any steam. Kennedy would live another 55 years fighting against racism and injustice. But the legacy of Stetson Kennedy and Superman to disarm hate by exposing it would become a part of America itself. Uncanny how Superman turns up just when you need him. I didn't even get a chance to thank him. You're the answer, son.